Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12. through 12. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Standing near the cross where Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. It's believed that the Apostle John was anywhere between 13 and 16 when he started following Jesus. And this puts him somewhere between 16 and 19 when he was standing there at the cross. The only of the 12 apostles who remained with him along with some of the women who would follow Jesus up to the very end. John was trustworthy. Jesus could entrust to him the care of his own mother and leadership in the fledgling church. This was a role into which John grew. He started as a very ambitious son of thunder, which is a nickname that he shared with his brother James. Now in Mark's gospel, we read how James and John asked Jesus to do for them whatever they asked. Jesus, would you do us a favor? When you sit on your throne, could we sit at your right and left? And Jesus told them that they didn't know what they were asking, that those places of honor were for the Father to give and he asked if they were prepared to suffer to hold those honorable places. They said they were ready, and Jesus responded that the world's way of using authority was to lord it over people, but in the kingdom of God, one who leads is to be a servant of all. And when Jesus was en route to Jerusalem right before his execution, Luke's gospel tells us about how there were some Samaritans that rejected Jesus' teaching John and James asked Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven to consume them and destroy them. But Jesus rebuked them for their impetuous desire to kill. And then Jesus continued towards his own death with determination. Now early on, Jesus called John a son of thunder. But then he proclaimed John to be the son of Christ's own mother, her caregiver. John asked for a place of honor. And Jesus gave him a chance to love and care for Mary, the mother of Christ. It's probably not the kind of honor that John was seeking, but if you look at how Jesus addressed values, it's one of the greatest honors that Jesus could bestow, a chance to become family through faith, a chance to share love, care, and mutuality. 
After the resurrection, John spent a lot of time with the apostle Peter as leaders in the church of Jerusalem. And in fact, the book of Acts tells us that Peter and John get arrested at the temple by the authorities of the temple for healing a man in the name of Jesus and proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the one chosen to deliver Israel. Peter gets credit for the miraculous healing and for the testimony, but scripture says that the accusing council saw the boldness of both Peter and John, and they recognized that these men had certainly been with Jesus. It's believed that around 44 AD, John's brother James was executed by King Herod Agrippa. Around 70 AD, John fled from a revolt-ridden Jerusalem to Ephesus, located in modern-day Turkey, where he would plant the Ephesian church. That's where it's believed John would write the gospel we attribute to him and the letters attributed to him. He was exiled to Patmos for his faith in 90 AD, where we understand that John received and wrote Revelation. And around 96 AD, when the Apostle Paul was beheaded, John returned to Ephesus and served that church until his death. This letter of John's is believed to be a general letter. There are some letters that were directed to specific people in Scripture, some directed to specific churches or communities, and some that were letters written to the whole church regardless of the location. And this is one of those, and it's intended to be read before gathered believers in the form of a sermon, which was a fairly common practice for church leaders in the early movement of Christianity. And of this particular letter, Methodist founder John Wesley says, how plain, how full, how deep a compendium of genuine Christianity. And from that depth, today we'll focus on something that was incredibly central to John's heart. And that leads to our first lesson. God's kind of love leads to right action, not just fond feelings. God's kind of love leads to right action, not just fond feelings. Back in 1 John chapter 3, John writes, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. Most of us will have a hard time understanding what it's like to live in the world before a groundbreaking event. I don't know what it is to live in a world before Reverend Dr. King's assassination or JFK's assassination or before Nixon's resignation. My kids don't know what it's like to live in a pre-9-11 world or a world that's not saturated with mobile devices or such internet connectivity. Moving forward, kids born now won't know what it's like to live in a pre-COVID-19 world, perhaps. This could be another groundbreaking culture-forming moment for our world. These are the waters into which each of us have been born. And regardless of the strength of our imagination, there are certain moments in history that have such significant impact that we who were born into a new world have a hard time understanding the world that existed before. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was such an event. I think we take for granted the degree to which our culture is shaped by the assumption that we share values like charity. We've been so inundated with cultural understandings of things like romantic love that we assume that such love has always been ingrained in the human experience. I think one of the reasons we recoil at the way that other cultures understand family relationships or the value of life is because we've been raised in waters that teach us those particular cultural values, but they aren't quite as universal as we'd assume. For example, 
In Jesus' time, much of the value system was based on a code of honor and shame. The goal for individuals, families, tribes, and nations is to increase honor and pride. This came from having or appearing to have great wealth, military victory, good health, opportunity for leisure, abundant land, submissive wives, strong sons, pretty daughters, plentiful servants, and the avoidance of public embarrassment. The strong survived, and those with the favor of the gods would thrive. Anything less than that would bring shame or dishonor. What did love have to do with that? A few people even asked. I'll exaggerate a bit, but when it came to things like marriage, it wasn't based on our notion of romance, but typically arranged for the material benefit and status of the heads of both families. As for family, elders were to be respected. Wives and children were largely seen as property. They were utilitarian and all served to give esteem to the head of the household. And friends, they were made and kept to uphold status in society. Was there genuine affection between people? Absolutely. Was it seen as a dominant cultural value? Not really. For example, our Western cultural understanding of love is influenced so much by the romanticism of the 19th century that we might also struggle to understand what John is trying to explain here. The concept of an attraction-based romantic love as a major motivation didn't really hold strong cultural influence in the global West until around the 12th century. Again, I'm not saying that people didn't do things out of a sense of love or attraction, but our concept of love has been so shaped by film, literature, art, poetry, and music that we have a hard time imagining uh, when love wasn't viewed through a largely happily ever after romantic lens. Now, John's first century audience might have understood love primarily as a matter of loyalty, pride, or shame, where John's 21st century audience might understand love primarily as a feeling of attraction or entitled acceptance. John addresses it as a matter of will, a choice that leads to loving action. John experienced that recalibration a bit when he sought a position of authority in return for his loyalty and instead was given a chance to care for Mary. Just moments after receiving that instruction from Jesus, John would witness the most powerful force in the created order demonstrate the extent of divine love. And that leads to our second lesson this morning. St. John's faith recognizes the height of love in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. St. John's faith recognizes the height of love in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. John continues, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. I used to enjoy roller coasters. I can't take them like I used to, but when I was in high school, we'd take trips to Great America or Six Flags and spend the entire day spinning ourselves into every kind of circle until we suffered at least minor concussions. And when I was a youth pastor, that was a great fun day motivator. Go to the amusement park, get sunburns, eat garbage, sniff diesel fumes, spin around until you want to barf. These are good times. 
There was something reassuring about the people who would go around to check and make sure that the safety devices were clicked and latched. I was fairly confident in my ability to pull down a bar, but for some reason it increased my confidence when a minimum wage-earning young person would do the, the least required to ensure our collective safety. And here's why. If that ride depended on my ability to hold on to it, I was going to lose my grip and get thrown off. That's just the reality of it. I couldn't possibly hold on tight enough to stay on the ride through all the twists, turns, jerks, and drops. It was going to, if I was going to make it to the end, that ride was going to have to hold on to me. And I think that's true for our Christian life also. John is telling us that this life of faith means we have to willingly love other people. And you've met people. That's a roller coaster right there. With people, there are always going to be twists, turns, drops, and the occasional jerks. If my success in this venture depends on my ability to hold on, I'm not going to make it to the end of this ride. My grip is simply not strong enough. If I'm going to make it through this journey, I need something to hold on to me. And that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If my life and faith depended on my ability to love perfectly, I'm going to fail. I don't want to fail. I don't try to fail. It's just that my grip is not strong enough. If my eternal destination depended on my ability to get things right, I'm getting thrown off this ride. I try to live well, and I'm going to try to keep living more and more like Jesus through daily surrender. But guess what? I keep missing the mark. I'd fall off the ride. If this journey depended on my ability to keep everything on track, I'm here to tell you I'd drop straight to the ground on the first loop. Fortunately, this journey doesn't depend on my grip. For this journey, I depend on God's grip. Jesus secured for us God's claim on us. John and Jesus want us to understand that the sacrifice Jesus made upon the cross of Calvary is more than enough to win you and me and everyone who trusts in him the gift of being called children of God. And because of that sacrifice, we know what it looks like to love fully as well. Now, scholars aren't unanimous in claiming that St. John the Apostle wrote Revelation, but I find the evidence of history and tradition to be compelling enough to attribute it to John the Apostle. In his vision described in Revelation 13.8, John describes how the Lamb representing Christ has been slaughtered before the world was made. How can that be? And what does that mean? I think it means that the nature of Christ has always been sacrificial love. Before time began, Jesus was going to be the sacrifice to show us the fullness of love and just how selfless it is. And I'll say it until God tells me otherwise that the crucifixion and the resurrection are the very reason the whole universe was set into motion so we might witness and experience the height of that love. A love that gives of itself so we might receive mercy, hope, a new start, a fresh chance to live out justice, receive forgiveness, and inherit eternal life. And it's the desire of God that when we experience such a love, then we would let Christ live through us so others might experience it too. Our third lesson this morning is this. God invented and initiated love. God invented and initiated love. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. 
No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. There are a number of people who would argue that the French invented love. There was a 1952 Roman film about La Donna Che L'Amore, which is the woman who invented love. Doris Day sang about the man who invented love in a song cut from the pajama game. Some blame it on Hallmark or De Beers, but they just figured out how to market it really well. Here's the thing, though. From the beginning, God has shown us what love is. From the garden that fed to the creatures that were our companions, from walks in the cool of the day to the sacrifice that covered our shame when we fell, God has shown us love through promises kept, commandments that upheld justice, instruction that reformed hearts, deliverance from oppression, healing from disease, provision for the impoverished, liberty for the captive, and life that is true, abundant, and eternal. All of this has been offered to us in the context of a relationship, one we simply wouldn't even know about had it not been extended to us. How has that loving relationship impacted the world in the name of love? For example, before the ministry of Christ, Women were viewed largely as property. Among the followers of Jesus, women were esteemed as equals, making the early church scandalous for its egalitarian notions. Children in John's time were seen as, who were seen as weak or useless were frequently abandoned. And the early church essentially adopted these children by, that the world saw as throwaways because Jesus taught that each of them were created as image bearers and so Christ followers established the first orphanages. During times of outbreaks of disease, healthy people would avoid the sick. Christ's followers, however, would care for them to healing or to a dignified death. Christ followers would establish the first hospitals. Education was only available to the wealthy and privileged, but Christ followers established schools accessible to anyone who desired to learn. Later followers of Jesus established the first universities, like Oxford. Sunday school inspired the first public schools. And because later Christ followers thought it so important that people would be able to read the Bible in their own languages, then there was a major push for literacy and for publication. It's been argued that the medieval understanding of natural laws set in place by an unchanging God gave rise to scientific inquiry and discovery. As John Ortberg writes in his book, Who is This Man? The idea of the equality of all human beings was not self-evident to the ancient world. Aristotle did not think all men to be created equal. He wrote that inequality, masters and slavery, was the natural order of things. For that some would rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. And so it was Christ followers who fought for things like abolition and equal rights based on the groundbreaking event that introduced a radical concept of equality into the world. All have dignity and worth as those who are made in the image of God, and we are to love them as we have been loved by our Savior. Sometimes that means standing up for them, other times it means laying down our lives for them, but always it means loving. Has the church carrying Christ's name always gotten it right? No. Have we gotten it really wrong in ways throughout our history? Absolutely. But without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, would the world even know the ideal for which we should aim? 
I don't think we would. And we'd have little hope of being forgiven for our wrongs or restored away from our brokenness. But we have that because of Jesus. In 1 John 4, verse 19, John tells us, we love each other because he first loved us. Without the love of Christ that has been with us from the very beginning, we wouldn't know what real love is at all. But because Christ has come, we can know perfect love and be remade by its power. Would you pray with me? Gracious, loving God, the God who has shown us the height, the depth, the width of love through the gift of Jesus in his life and death and resurrection. Lord, because you have loved us so well, so powerfully, our lives have been touched and transformed. Because your love has permeated our hearts, let us love as we have been loved. God, we ask that you would encourage us and embolden us as disciples and as your church to stand up for those who need to know that they too have been created in the divine image and to lay down our lives for those who are being oppressed, wounded, who need to be restored. God, this is all by your grace, all because you have seen fit to call this world lovingly into being so that we might witness and experience the height of love in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because he lives now in us, that love continues to shine in this world. What a gift it is to be a part of that, God. We thank you. We praise you. We love you because you have first loved us. And we live in grateful response. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.